as we come to God's word today. Let's start with prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have created us in a way that reflects your image. We thank you that you have given us the ability to speak. And we pray that our words would be ones of grace and love and mercy. And we come to you today hungry for your words in our lives. Lord, speak to us. Speak to us through your holy word and let that bring life to us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Back in the day before COVID, our Centerpoint staff meeting was always in Pastor Jim's office, and we would all crowd in with our cups of coffee, and sometimes there would be donuts. There are no more donuts. In fact, we are meeting weekly on Zoom at this point, and so we don't gather with our coffee crowded into a little room. Instead, we're in our various living rooms or uh, offices, but... Pastor Jim has started a new tradition for us. He starts each staff meeting with trivia. And to carry on that tradition, I thought I would start us off today with some trivia, some Bible trivia. You can answer these questions together as a family, work on them together. Are you ready? It's really simple. All you have to do is decide whether a phrase comes from the Old Testament or the New Testament. The first one, easy. Living water. Is that in the Old Testament or the New Testament? What about four horsemen? Old Testament or New Testament? Golden lampstand. Old or new? 30 pieces of silver. Old Testament or New Testament? Your king comes riding on a donkey. This one should be easy. Old Testament or New Testament? People from every language and nation. Yeshua, seated on a throne. Okay, the answers. The first one, living water. Is it in the Old Testament and New, or New Testament? The answer is New Testament and Old Testament. In fact, every one of these can be found both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. More specifically, every one of these can be found in Zechariah and the New Testament. Zechariah is the minor prophet most quoted in the New Testament. So let's look at Zechariah. To clarify, we are talking about Zechariah, the minor prophet. There are actually at least 29 separate people named Zechariah in the Bible. Zechariah, the minor prophet, gives us his dates specifically. He says his first vision came on the eighth month of the second year of King Darius. That places it right about 520 B.C. 
His contemporary was Haggai. They both prophesied to Judah. The historical context was the return from exile. And we will return to that in a minute. The theme is return to me and I will return to you. That's what God longed for. All the way through the book of Zechariah, God longs for his people to dwell with him and for him to dwell with his people. The crazy thing is, although that's the theme, they had already returned. They were already in Jerusalem, but that didn't look exactly how they might have expected it to look. So let's do a little review of a timeline to understand that. When the minor prophets first started prophesying, the Assyrian Empire was the major geopolitical force of that time. And during that era, the northern kingdom, Israel, falls because of their unfaithfulness to God. And Judah remains, remains faithful and remains a nation. And then the power shifts and Assyria falls to the Babylonian Empire. And during that time, Judah's unfaithfulness means that Judah falls and they are carried off into exile. Second Kings describes what that looks like. When the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem, they tore down the city walls. They destroyed the temple and all the important buildings. They plundered all of the valuables from the temple and the palaces. And then they burned the city. And they carried all of its residents off into captivity to Babylon. That's the exile. Seventy years of living outside of their homeland. Seventy years of living outside of the land of the covenant. And then power shifted and Babylon fell to the Persian Empire. And the exiles were allowed to return home. Ezra describes what that looked like. In the first wave of exiles returning home, there were almost 50,000 people returning, including their own political leader, Zerubbabel, who was from the line of David. But he wasn't king. He was just their political leader. And including Joshua, their high priest, and including Haggai and Zechariah and a cast of thousands. And with them, they carried all of the valuable items that had been plundered by the Babylonians all of those years before from the temple. The Persian king sent them all back with him. And the Persian king and their neighbors in Babylon sent all sorts of additional gifts to help with the rebuilding project. Imagine what that would have felt like to get to go home to the homeland you had never gotten to live in. Isaiah described 
in advance, he prophesied what that day would feel like. Here's what he said. Those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. The exiles may well have entered Zion with singing, but it was a little messier than they might have anticipated. Their own king, Zerubbabel, didn't enter as king of Judah. He was now the governor of the Persian province of Yehud. And their own high priest, Joshua, didn't have a temple to serve in. And their city, well, do you remember the campfire a few years ago? Do you remember paradise and how people were finally able to return to paradise, but that didn't mean it was magically restored? Rebuilding paradise is still happening. In fact, we are sending a mission team to help with that effort at the end of the month. And think about Beirut just recently in the news. It's going to take a long time to rebuild Beirut. Remember when the Babylonians overthrew Jerusalem, they burned it. And then it sat uninhabited almost for 70 years. And then they returned. They returned to a city that everything needed to be rebuilt in. Rebuilding is an overwhelming task. They started with great enthusiasm. The first thing they did was they laid the foundation for the new temple. And they constructed an altar. And they held a blowout worship celebration. And Joshua started offering sacrifices on the altar, even though the temple was unfinished. But there was so much to do. And the walls also needed to be rebuilt. And their houses also needed to be rebuilt. And crops needed to be planted. And, and there were so many other things to do. And, and then opposition arose from their neighboring countries who didn't like the idea of Jerusalem rebuilding its temple. So their neighbors complained to Persia and those political machinations ground that rebuilding project to a halt. Complete stop. Not just for a few months or for a year. 18 years. 18 years of nothing happening. 18 years of weeds growing higher. 18 years of urban blight. 18 years of worshiping in a very unfinished setting. 18 years of discouragement. And in that time of discouragement, God sent 
his two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, to speak his words to his people. They, their messages were complementary. Haggai focused on rebuilding the temple. Zechariah focused on rebuilding the people of God, rebuilding their relationship with the Lord. And through those two prophets, God lit a fire under his people, and the temple was completed in four years. Zechariah offers hope in a time of discouragement. He starts off by calling them back into relationship with God. And you see that theme through the entire book of Zechariah, of God longing for his people to live with him wholeheartedly. Now, he called them back to himself. God said, return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord. But remember, they had already returned to the city. God was calling them to return to him, to return to relationship, to return spiritually and emotionally, to return wholeheartedly to life, dwelling with God. He starts off in Zechariah by offering a number of dream visions that the Lord gives Zechariah. These dream visions are bizarre, kind of like your dreams may be bizarre. Familiar people, people you recognize, are doing totally impossible things. And, and the timeline is incredibly fluid. It's as if Zechariah sees their past and their present and their immediate future, and then their future when the Messiah will come, and then their future, 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 the day of the Lord. It's as if he sees all of those times, all at the same time, and they're interwoven with each other. And there are all of these symbols, symbols that you also see in Daniel and Ezekiel, and Revelation. You cannot read Revelation without looking at Zechariah. In these dream visions, I wish I had time to tell you all of them, but <clears throat> in these dream visions, two stand out to me. The first one is a vision of their high priest Joshua the guy who is already at work offering sacrifices on that temple foundation. But in the vision, Joshua's not in that setting. He's standing in the courts of heaven, being accused by Satan. And Joshua is wearing filthy robes, which are explained as being filthy because they are covered with the sin of all of his people, all of that sin. And God tells them to remove those robes from Joshua and to replace them with pure white robes. And God promises that one day he will remove the sin of his people in a single day in a later vision, we see Joshua again, and at this point, Joshua is being crowned and seated on a throne. 
High priests don't wear crowns. High priests don't sit on thrones. This is a vision of a royal priest. Think how that would have made the people of Zechariah's day feel. Their high priest, who was working under such arduous context, their high priest was being valued and honored and elevated by God in the heavenly places. And think about how the concept of a priest being crowned would have reminded them of the covenant that God gave Moses on Mount Sinai, where he promised that they, all of them, would be to him a royal priesthood. God was saying, I'm not finished yet. You are still my people, and I am at work. The name Joshua is interesting, isn't it? You can translate it, that's the Hebrew word. You can translate it in Aramaic as Yeshua. You can translate it in English as Jesus. We have a high priest who is crowned and seated on a throne and who has removed our sin in a single day. Think how all of that would have encouraged the people of Jesus' time. Think how that encourages us. And that all goes back to Zechariah. The other dream vision that I just love is of the other leader, Zerubbabel, who is descended from King David, King Solomon, who built the first temple in all of its glory on that same site in Jerusalem. That descendant, Zerubbabel, is pictured in the vision as first laying the foundation for the temple, which he has already done in real life. But in the vision, he also lays the capstone of the completed temple. God is telling them that that will happen in Zerubbabel's lifetime, that the project will come to completion. Imagine how that might have made them feel. Zerubbabel had so little political power in that post-exilic world. And God is saying, it's not about power. It's not about might. It's about my spirit. And he says exactly that in Zechariah 4.6. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord God Almighty. Zerubbabel's work was not insignificant, even though it looked so small. Zerubbabel's work and their work at rebuilding, in spite of all of the obstacles, in spite of the long, slow slog, was God's work. And that didn't depend on might or power. And then God follows that by saying this, this is my favorite verse in all Zechariah. Who dares 
despise the day of small things. God is using Zerubbabel and them for his purposes, even though what they are doing looks so small and insignificant. After the fire gets lit under the people of Judah, after the rebuilding project starts, two years into that rebuilding project, the people, some of the people of Judah send a question to the priests and the prophets. And God uses Zechariah to use that to call them back into living as God's people. The question that the people wanted answered was about fasting. Should we still be fasting? They had been fasting regularly all the way through the exile. And now here they were, returned to Jerusalem, and they want to know, is fasting still the appropriate way to worship you? It, it, aren't we done yet? It sounds like a great spiritual question. How do we worship well? But really, at another level, it's the same question every kid asks on every card trip. Are we there yet? You would think that if a kid knew that we were driving to Grandma's house, they would be able to tell when we pulled into Grandma's driveway. You would think that the people of Judah if they knew we were rebuilding the temple, would be able to tell when the temple was finished. But they asked the question. They were discouraged. They were impatient. They wanted to get on with things. And God turns their question on a head, on its head. He says, let's talk about those fasts that you've been doing all of those years. Who were those for? Were those for me? Or were those for you? Who do you really want to worship? Me? Or do you just want the feel-good, celebrative parts of worship? Because if you really want to worship me, I've told you long ago in former prophets what the fast is that I want. Do justice. Love, mercy. If you really want to worship me, embrace my priorities. Live as my people. Return to me. He calls them back into living as God's people. But he doesn't stop with that challenge. Instead, he paints a beautiful picture to encourage them of what it looks like when you really live with God wholeheartedly. He paints a picture of Jerusalem being fully restored. Everything is beautiful. There's peace. And so the old people are enjoying their leisure. The children are playing in the streets. The crops are flourishing. And people are flocking to Jerusalem from other nations to worship the Lord. Because that's what the covenant is about. That God would bless his people so that they would bless other nations so that everyone would worship God. 
And so God is saying, come back to the covenant. Come back to worshiping me wholeheartedly, not just through your motions, through your lives. True worship is not about fasts or feasts or any ritual. True worship is not dependent on a location or a building. True worship is worshiping the Lord through our lives, living in joyful response to our God as God's people. That's all in Zechariah. And then Zechariah helps them look ahead to the future. And he calls them to trust God for the future through a number of other prophecies that he gives them. In one of the significant ones, he describes Jerusalem, again, restored, rebuilt, flourishing, and their king coming to dwell with them in that beautiful city. And the king comes riding on a donkey, as King Solomon did when the country was at peace and he didn't have to ride a war horse. And there is great rejoicing on that day when the king enters Jerusalem. And Zechariah says, the Lord their God will save his people on that day as a shepherd saves his flock. They will sparkle in his land like jewels in a crown. How attractive and beautiful they will be. Imagine being in the middle of that long, slow slog of rebuilding all that yet is to be done, so many obstacles, and having this picture painted for you of a time when there will be flourishing and joy and beauty when you will sparkle. Zechariah goes on and describes that king, that shepherd, then being rejected by his own people, being pierced, being mourned for, and through that, a fount being opened that cleanses the sin of all of God's people. That's all in Zechariah. Imagine how that would have made them feel. Imagine how that would have made the early Christians feel as they recognized that, that Zechariah had, had foreseen long ago, that God had said long ago, this is what will be necessary for me to restore the relationship between me and the people. Jesus' crucifixion was not a failure. Jesus' crucifixion was what God has always intended to do to save his people. Imagine what Jesus' people of his time would have felt when they saw a descendant of Zerubbabel, a descendant of Solomon, a descendant of G David, riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. No wonder they cried, Hosea, Hosanna, Lord, save us. 
That's our yearning as well. Zechariah also paints a picture of the future, future, future. The day of the Lord. And as with the other minor prophets, this day is a day both of judgment for all sin and a day of salvation and joy. And Zechariah describes Jerusalem as fully restored, God dwelling with his people in joy. Streams of living water flowing from the city and all of the nations coming to worship the Lord. It's a description of the fulfillment of the covenant. It's a description of what life will be like when God dwells with his people and his people with him forever. Imagine how that picture would have felt when you were struggling to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. Zechariah was showing them that they were not just rebuilding a temple. They were, rebuilding, they were building for the future. They were building God's future through their little and significant tasks. That picture of the fully restored Jerusalem uh, is very similar to the picture of the new Jerusalem in Revelation. John and his readers would have recognized how it fit into the picture that Zechariah was given all of those years earlier. And John and his readers would have recognized that God was saying to them as well, you can trust me for your future. All of this is building for my future. Zechariah helps the people in his time and the people in John's time, the early church, view their unfinished work in light of God's eternal work. Helps them view their unfinished lives in light of, God, of God's eternal life. And that's what Zechariah does for us. We are in a time that feels terribly unfinished. We are in a time of deep discouragement. We are in a long, slow slog. We can't see the end. Life is not supposed to be like this. And everything we do feels so small, so insignificant. In the middle of all of this, God's word remains the same. And what Zechariah said back then is God's word for us today. Return to me. Live as my people. Trust me for your future. And do not dare despise the day of small things. Because what we are doing is being used by God himself, even when we can't see that, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Let's pray. 
Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for this encouragement. Thank you that you knew that Zechariah's people would need this encouragement, that you knew that the early church would need this encouragement, and that you knew that we would need this encouragement. Lord, we do want to live wholeheartedly with you, to live as your people, to embrace your priorities, and to trust you, to trust you for the future, to trust you that even the small, insignificant things that you call us to do day by day, in the midst of all of this unfinished stuff, that you are using them and that you are in them and that you will accomplish your purposes. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.